Good morning. Good morning. Um, normally, when I get to preach, um, Shannon's out of town, and so I kind of get to do my thing, and, and I don't have to worry about anything, but he had this grading sheet this morning with him, and so if y'all see him over there scribbling stuff down, it's not notes necessarily in a good sense. Um, I, y'all might not even see me next week. I may not even be here, all right? Uh, Amanda, if you see him sleeping or updating his Instagram in the middle of this, you slap him on the hand for me, okay? Um, we're going to kind of keep the, uh, the J train rolling this morning. We're going to keep pushing along in the book of James. Um, I like the book of James. Um, it's pretty challenging. It's pretty eye-opening. Um, it really pushes a believer to live out a faith of action, to get out of the audience and into the wheelbarrow. That probably makes no sense to y'all, but last time I spoke, I actually used the analogy of the tightrope walker in the wheelbarrow and the idea of having this faith that pushes you into action, an action that people can see. I think that the book of James is that type of book. It it talks about living out this this faith of action, putting your money where your mouth is. Um, When I talked about faith before, I said that you can't really see faith. If I walked around with a big old mason jar of faith, it wouldn't have anything in it. So in order for us to be able to express our faith to where people see it, then we have to live a life of action. And James is that book of action. Now, I read James, I think, a little bit differently than I read some of the other books of the Bible. Um, There's something about the words of Jesus' little brother that kind of connect with me. Um, Maybe because I'm the youngest of three brothers. And so... There's no way that you could convince me that my big brothers uh, were sinless, all right? There's maybe that, that very physical brotherly love that they put me through growing up. Um, I've forgiven them, and so is Jesus, um, but you're not going to convince me that either one of them is the Messiah. It's just not going to happen. Yet, the gospel seems to be validated, for me at least, in the fact that James, the little brother of Jesus, um, to the point of death, believed that his big brother was the risen Christ. That's pretty powerful. Um, I think that it's a powerful thing for me, and it kind of puts this particular epistle, when I read these words, they're very weighty for me. So we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to specifically be looking at verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James chapter 2. The words will also be on the screen, but like I tell my students, I would encourage you to bring your Bible with you on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays when we meet uh, for the youth. A little bit of a recap. So last week, Pastor Shannon kind of buttoned up chapter one for us. And what he talked about was this idea of religion that is undefiled, looking after orphans and widows. The way that he phrased it was the helpless and the hopeless. And we go from this idea of undefiled religion and, and helping the helpless and the hopeless into this story or this narrative from James where he talks about the people of the church that are giving into the world and neglecting the helpless and the hopeless, that they're um, catering to the people of worldly abundance. So we jump right in, right here in verse 1, and it says this. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So you'll be happy to know that when I am preparing a message, step one for me when I am preparing for a particular Sunday morning that I'm going to be preaching is to actually read the piece of scripture that I'm going to be talking to you guys about, all right? And so when I read over James uh, a few weeks ago when Shannon said, hey, you're going to be talking about James chapter two, one through seven, I opened up my Bible, I read over it, and I got to the end of it, and to be real honest with you, I was slightly underwhelmed. I got to the end and I was kind of like, okay, it seems pretty straightforward, right? Like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to talk uh, as long as Shannon normally talks. I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk that long about this partiality. It seems pretty cut and dry, right? Don't show favoritism. If a rich man or a poor man comes in, they're both as valuable um, to God. So I, I don't know what really more to say about that. But Scripture tends to do some pretty amazing things when you really start to peel the onion back a little bit, right? Like, you can read a sentence in a science book that says the sky is blue, but then you can get deeper and find out that it's, you know, light passing through gases and that there's this more detailed story behind that simple statement. And Scripture is the same way. When you get into it and you start to study it, that God starts to reveal things through His Word. It's, it's pretty amazing. So James, here, we're going we're gonna to peel this onion back a little bit. James starts off here in verse 1, and he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My brothers. Seems like a pretty simple way to start off this particular chapter of this book. But James is being pretty strategic here. He's saying my brothers because he's identifying with them, right? He's saying, you know, we're part of this family. Y'all are Christians along with me. You're supposed to show no partiality because you hold this faith in our Lord Jesus. He's saying that we need to be like Christ. If we're going to be images of Christ, if we're going to be heirs of Christ, if we're going to be part of this big family, then we're supposed to be as he is, live a life as he lived. Being born again in Christ isn't just about knowing God. It's about living for him and living as he lived. It's not about doing something so that we can earn salvation. It's doing something because we have salvation. And the truth is, what we see reflected in Scripture repeatedly over and over and over again is that God is not a God of partiality. It says in Romans 2 that God shows no partiality. It's pretty black and white. It's non-existent. And thank the good Lord for that. Like, like really, it should be a thankful thing for us that there's no merit system. There's no good deed that outweighs a bad deed. Partiality is, is non-existent in the nature of who God is. There's no threshold of evil that exceeds God's reconciliation of us through Christ's death on the cross. We're all equally sinners. We are impartially broken, but we're also impartially forgiven through him. Partiality is in stark contrast to the very nature of God and who God is. What James is saying here is he's saying that if we claim to be followers, if we claim to be believers of Christ, and yet we view the world with partiality, then we're missing a big part of who God is and who he's calling us to be. See, if the Holy Spirit's living within us, then we exalt Christ. But if it's the spirit of the world that lives within us, then we begin to exalt men. Now, I'm going to be a little honest here for a second. It's an, impos it's an impossible task to be impartial. We live in this world of partiality. If I'm really transparent with you all, then 
Um, I am a person that tends to struggle with partiality in my own life. Um, and if I'm even being more honest with you, I didn't even really think it was that big of a deal until I started preparing for this sermon this morning. It's amazing kind of how the, the study of the Bible um, starts to reveal things in us. Uh, James, as an example, is one of those books that's kind of like studying psychology in college, all right? Or psych. If you're a cool college kid, you call it psych, right? When I studied psychology in college, I can remember opening my psychology book and reading about all of these disorders and convincing myself that I had all of them, right? Like every single one of them I read, I went, okay, selective mutism, my wife would probably agree, that and selective hearing probably. Insomnia, I found myself staying up all, all night long. I was convinced for an entire semester that I was a paranoid schizophrenic, Okay. <laughs> The good news is, is I'm not any of those things, but as we've been digging into James every week, I've started to see all of these spiritual disorders that I've got. Partiality is one of them. And the reason why I suffer from partiality is because I have let myself become stained by the world. I've bought into this American dream that if I buy lots of things and I have the newest stuff and um, it's all of the greatest stuff, and if I'm around other people that have lots of things and buy the newest stuff and have all of the greatest things, then that's going to make me happy, that it's going to result in some sort of acceptance from society or from the people around me. And the reason why I think that is because I accept people off of that. Like, that's the criteria that I have. And it's a natural reaction because when we enter into a friendship with somebody, a mutual relationship with someone, our natural inclination, if, if it's this phileo type of love like the Bible talks about, then it's a give and take type of relationship. You're going to give to me, I'm going to give a little bit to you, you're going to get a little bit from me, I'm going to get a little bit from you. It's got to be mutually beneficial, right? And so when I start sizing up my friendships, I want to make sure that I'm entering into this mutually beneficial relationship with somebody that can give as much as I can give that I'm going to end up getting as much from the relationship as they are. But the problem is, is the Bible doesn't call us to that. Our love and our identity in Christ doesn't call us to that. It calls us to love people as Christ loved us, and that's sacrificially. It's without the sense of any form of benefit or getting anything in return. And when we view our relationships like that, then partiality really should start to disappear because it doesn't matter if somebody's rich that walks in or if it's somebody that's influential because you're loving them sacrificially without the sense of getting that type of benefit. It should be the type of love that looks at the heart of people, the part that you can't see, the part that you can only know through interaction and experience with them. The literal interpretation of what James is saying here in this particular piece of Scripture, when he's talking about partiality, um, it was really kind of a weird way of saying it, but it's actually the term to receive a face, um, which I didn't really understand when I first kind of looked at it. But in the Old Testament, there wasn't a word for partiality. Like the word partiality didn't exist. So when it talks about God's impartiality, the word that it says is that God does not receive a face. He receives a heart. God doesn't judge man um, by his body type or his height or his weight, um, the car that he drives, the fancy clothes that he wears, the nice job that he has, none of that. And it's an earth-shattering idea for James's audience. Like the people that James is talking about during this particular piece of Scripture are people that understand that in their society, like being wealthy was a sense of power. He goes on to talk about the court system as an example and that if you go into court, sometimes it's not even about the facts, that if you're a poor person going up against 
a wealthy person, then you're probably not going to win the case because they've got more money than you. And as odd as it might seem, I don't think that we live in a society that is that far off from that. Um, but we're not supposed to mirror society as the church. In fact, society is supposed to look at us and be a little bit confused by the way we interact with one another. Um, they should wonder about our love for God and our love for its people, and they should wonder why it transcends social and economical and racial barriers. The society should be looking at us and wondering what in the world is propelling us to love people this way. And for somebody that's poor, both financially and spiritually, the refreshing news of the gospel is that they're loved, that they're important, and that they're useful. And it's not because of wealth or influence, it's because of who their creator is. James goes on here in verse 5, and he says this. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. He's doing it again. He's, he's identifying them as family members, as people in Christ. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So James is asking a bit of a rhetorical question here, because James's audience should know the answer to it. If they're halfway familiar with Scripture, um, James himself has probably heard Jesus uh, make the analogy that he talks about in Matthew, where it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the, my knee-jerk reaction, though, when I read this, when I read James's statement and this question that he poses, is that we're talking about impartiality, right? James has started talking to these people about impartiality, but I feel like he's kind of swung to the opposite end of the pendulum already. Like, he started talking about how the poor man is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven and the rich man isn't, or it's not as easy for him to. And so isn't he favoring the poor? I mean, isn't there a touch of partiality here? Is, is James trying to tell me that God is showing partiality to the poor? I think that that would be an incorrect assessment. I think that we're all equally sinners. I think that we're all equally broken. We're all equally in need of a Savior, rich or poor. We all need Jesus. Um, but I don't think that you could come to the conclusion here that God doesn't use wealthy people. Uh, you look at Barnabas as an example, sold off portions of his land in order to help fund the apostles. Um, Lydia was a rich businesswoman that ended up opening up her home so that the gospel could be spread. God uses those people. Um, if you look later on in Matthew when he's talking about the camel and the eye of the needle, Jesus goes on to say that with man this, the rich man entering heaven, is impossible but with God, all things are possible. What James is pointing out is the difficulty, though, for those with worldly wealth to recognize what their need really is. The gospel offers so much to the poor, but it requires so much of the rich. When I read these words, the ones that jump out off of this page for me is the statement that those who are poor in the world are the ones that are rich in faith. The poor are rich in faith because, um, well, they need to be. For some of them, it's all that they've got. Um, some of y'all might be familiar with Wes Stafford. Wes Stafford was the former president of Compassion International. Um, and a few years ago, he spoke at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit. And he told this story about a pastor in Ethiopia named Tedessa. Now, uh, Ethiopia, during this particular time, uh, was under communist government. The church in Ethiopia couldn't uh, share the gospel openly. They had to go underground. They had to meet in secret. And... Um, this pastor, Tedessa, continued to preach the gospel boldly and oftentimes in public. He would go and he would preach at funerals without fear of any form of repercussion. 
Well, the Ethiopian government got a hold of Tedessa, and they arrested him, and they attempted to execute him by electrocution on two separate occasions. On the second time that they actually tried to kill Tedessa, they flipped the switch, and the power in the whole town went out. So they didn't know what to do with him. So they just let him go, right? So as Tedessa's walking away from his second electrocution attempt, Wes ends up running into him in Ethiopia. And he asks him, he says, where are you going? And Tedessa says, I'm going to preach at another funeral. It's mind-blowing. Like, it's a, it's a, to, to, you don't want to take a, like, dude, 15 minutes, man. Like, sit down and have a glass of water. But this guy is immediately walking from a second electrocution attempt on to his, his next public profession of faith. And it's not even the craziest thing that Tedessa said to Wes. Wes goes on to make the comment to him. He says, well, we're praying for you. The people of, of America, of, of my church, of my ministry are praying for you, Tedessa, and they're praying for the church of Ethiopia. And Tedessa looks at Wes and he says, uh, we're praying for you. Church of Ethiopia has been praying for America. And Wes is a little confused by the statement, naturally, right? Because he's thinking, how in the world and why is dirt poor Ethiopia, who can't preach the gospel or share the gospel without fear of some sort of uh, you know, possible execution praying for America? Like, we're, we're wealthy. We're free. We can do and, and come and go however we please. And Tedessa goes on to explain. He says, the church in Ethiopia does suffer greatly, but it's nothing like in America. In fact, we suffer so much that we have to pray continuously. We can't go a moment without prayer. We're forced to memorize Scripture because our church only has one Bible. So we either memorize the words of Scripture or we tear pages out and we spread those pages amongst people in the congregation. We, just, we can't go a moment without being in the Word. We have to submerge ourselves in it. We have to cling to God daily. But we hear that in America it's quite different. We hear that you can go weeks without praying, that you can go even longer without even opening the Word of God, um, that church is such a luxury that it, it oftentimes gets skipped over for more leisurely and fun activities. You don't even have to go to church. The Bibles are so plentiful that they usually go untouched and unopened. See, during the 17 years of oppression and persecution of the church in Ethiopia, the Christian church quadrupled in size. The church in America continues to decline today. The poor of the world are rich in faith. It's a story that is a tough pill for me to swallow because I identify with that. Like I think about that and I think about my life and I think about when my job is going well and I am healthy and I am cruising along and all these things are good, then I become faith poor. I start to rely on the stuff that I have and I completely look over the fact that there's all this stuff that God has given to me. James is making a point here and he's saying, look, you're worshiping money, you're worshiping the people that make the money, but it's faith that will make you heirs to a kingdom. And it's the poor that have that faith in abundance because they recognize where their need is. There are two characters in this narrative that I think we need to avoid emulating. The first is the believer that has taken their eyes off of the abundance of God and they've become intoxicated by this worldly wealth. And because of that, they've started to neglect the very people of God. The second person is the rich man that uses his abundance for worldly power and influence so that he can oppress and condemn, so he can push people down, so he can push himself up. 
what James, I think, is saying here is that regardless of how much money you have, what you need to do is rely on God. You need to love his people, and you need to love God without partiality. So what do we do with all of that? Like, where do we go from there? Like, Ryan, that's a bunch of great information. That was a great story that you told us. But how do we avoid becoming these people? You know, in this land of abundance, when we have all of this stuff, how do we avoid becoming rich in wealth but poor in faith? Well, the first thing is we have to recognize what our need is. We have to recognize that that need goes beyond just having a really good seat. See, I think the telling thing here is the rich man is in church. He's got the best seat in the house. But it's his action beyond the four walls of that building that really reveal who he was at the core. How are you living when you leave here? Is it just another good seat when you come here on Sunday mornings? We've also got to live with the understanding that with or without all of this stuff, we desperately need Jesus. We need him. We have a unique opportunity because of where we're born here in America. We really do. Like, even people that think that they're in bad shape by worldly standards are relatively well off. Are we using our abundance, though, in order to bring God glory? Because that's the opportunity that we're placed in right now. We're given the opportunity because of where God uh, placed us at birth that we've got all of this extra stuff that we can use for him. When you look at the early church in the book of Acts, you really see kind of how the rich and poor in the church interact, right? You see that the people with abundance started to sell their things so that they could give to those that were in need. And it says that the Lord added to their number. People were drawn to that type of lifestyle. I think that they're still drawn to that type of lifestyle today. Now, this is not the moment when I ask you guys to go home and sell all your stuff, all right? I'm not about to start getting into a tithe lesson here and start talking about how much you need to give to us. But it is a moment where I challenge you guys a little bit. I want you to examine within yourself if you're using your abundance to bring God glory or maintain worldly status. Here's what I yearn for. Here's what I want for us as a church. And I'm not just talking about Sabine Creek Fellowship. I'm talking about what Shannon refers to a lot as the big C, right? But also Sabine Creek, the little C. What I want for us is I want us to be somebody that uses our wealth to raise God up instead of ourselves. And a place where people can come and they're received not only by God, but also by his people. In order for us to do that, though, in order for us to receive and accept people, then we have to overcome our prejudice. We have to overcome our partiality. We have to overcome our cliques. We have to step outside of our comfort zones. We have to engage with people. And I don't mean just make them stand in the corner or make them sit at our feet. You're not loving somebody if you're just in their presence, right? Like, you're not checking that box just because you let them around you. You have to actually talk to them. Look them in the eye when they're talking to you. Listen to them when they're talking to you. Pray with them and pray for them. You need to love people. As James will remind us in verse 8, we should love them as we love ourselves. Let's pray together. Father God, you, uh, you give graciously to us. Um, we are in a place where... Um, we do not need. Um, our needs tend to be relatively trivial um, when we look at the grand scope of things. And God, I pray that um, if there's anything that we take from here is the fact that we have the ability to go out into the world and use these blessings in order to expose the rest of the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I pray that we don't take that for granted. I pray that we don't go out in the world and, and segregate people off and neglect people because of what we perceive them to be like, but that we go and we get to know them in a way to where we can examine their heart, where we can enter into a relationship of love that's not something that's mutually beneficial, but something that we are open to giving sacrificially to them. God, I don't know uh, what all these people are struggling with, what they're going through on a day-to-day basis, God, but I pray that you continue to, to pour blessings in their life and that even in the midst of trial and tribulation that we can see that you're using that to strengthen us and our uh, message of your redemption. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, amen.